Welcome to the Steroids Podcast with your host, Dan the Bodybuilder from Thailand. The Steroids Podcast is brought to you by Ultimate Guide to Roids, 109-page ebook by Dan the Bodybuilder from Thailand. Now, for the first time in bodybuilding history, you have someone with no corporate interests and no obligation to please anyone, not walking on eggshells to not offend. Ultimate Guide to Roids gives you the information, the whole information, the whole truth, not a full truth and a half truth. Full truth. Ultimate Guide to Roids gives you the keys to the Lamborghini, gives you the information, and lets you decide what to do with it. It's a crime this information has been suppressed this long. Now let's get on with the podcast. Okay, welcome back to the Steroids Podcast. If you guys would like to schedule a one-hour phone consultation, I do that. So you can go ahead and send me an email, steroidspodcast at gmail.com. It's $59, and we do a one-hour phone call between me and you, totally uncensored. You can talk about anything you want during that phone call. If you enjoy the podcast, this is a valuable thing to take advantage of. First question for today is from Zach, who asks, question for the podcast I've noticed I've been getting pretty drastic mood swings recently. Some days I'll feel really euphoric, confident, and outgoing. I notice those days I feel pretty swole and tight, lean-looking face, no bloating. And the other half of the time I'll feel like I can't think straight, annoyed for no reason, bloated and puffy in the face, and antisocial. My physique will also feel soft and flat. Was wondering if this was common and how to address it. Currently on... Week 4 of 400 testinanthate per week and 800 equipoise per week. He's not using an anti-estrogen tablet, but he has it. Hasn't had itchy nipples, so hasn't used any. Thanks, man. Yeah, well, so first thing is that hormones and steroids, uh, they, they cause mood issues. So everybody has their mood affected to some degree uh, by hormones. You can see that uh, very clearly when women have their period or when women go on birth control. There are always major uh, changes that they experience in their moods. Um, and the same thing is what goes on with you. Like if you're saying that um, it's a few days, you know, some days that you're having these effects then other days that you aren't. Well, if you don't have any anti-estrogen problems or if you don't have any estrogen problems like nipple sensitivity it's probable that you don't really produce a lot of estrogen or possess a lot of aromatase enzyme that transforms uh, anabolic steroids into estrogen in your body uh, but that doesn't mean that you have none so the way that most of these injectable steroids work is that most of them, even long esters like enanthate and equipoise, they, they peak within the first 24 to 48 hours after you take an injection. And then the, the difference between a long ester and a short ester is that, uh, you know, a short acting ester like propionate or acetate, you know, that, that peaks actually only a couple hours after injection. And then uh, it rapidly releases the entire injected dose into your system within two or three days. Whereas with like enanthate or, you know, you said you're taking equipoise, which is boldenone undecyclinate. Undecyclinate is the long acting ester attached to equipoise, uh, boldenone. And, um, both of those, uh, those esters, enanthate and endocyclinate, they still release the steroid in the highest concentration that it's ever going to be released into your bloodstream in the first, 24 to 48 hours after the injection, but then they stay elevated for a longer period of time. Instead of dropping off rapidly in the amount of hormone that's being released into your system, the way that like a propionate or an acetate would, the enanthate or the undecyclinate, they keep on releasing, you know, a comparable amount of uh, steroid into your bloodstream for, you know, three to four to five days after the injection, and then they start to drop off. So I don't know... 
how frequently you do your injections. Um, there wasn't a lot of information provided there, but most likely what's happening is that you're having hormone level fluctuations. So some people inject even long esters uh, every day in order to avoid that. And you know, most people that really have freaky physiques, uh, etc., most of them take steroids every day. That's, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I don't want to take uh, injections really frequently. But the reality of the matter is that, you know, for people that look like bodybuilding is their life, um, they also want to usually want to take an injection every day. That's like part of what they want to do each day. And there's various reasons for that. But one of the things that that does do is that it stabilizes those levels so that they're always the same. So if you take an injection and then the next couple days you feel uh, some mood effects or something like that and then everything goes back to normal, you know, the more, the more uh, testosterone especially that you have in your blood, the more estrogen that you're going to have going on and, you know, bloating. So just because you don't have sensitive nipples doesn't mean that you don't have estrogen levels that are out of range. Uh, one of the one of the really good indicators also of uh, having estrogen levels that are high would be having a face that is unusually pink or red tinted uh, for for your normal. A lot of white people have uh, normally pink tinted skin uh, to begin with. So if that's normal for you, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if it's more than normal for you. This is an indicator. And then another one would be if you wake up in the morning or if you lay down on your bed sometime during the day and you like lay on your stomach and then when you when you get up from the bed you know maybe you laid on your stomach on the bed for like 10 or 15 minutes and then when you get up from the bed you can see markings all over your your chest and your stomach uh from where the bed or the blanket or something like that was pressing into you or the same thing if you do if you get that same effect on your leg from wearing socks this would be subcutaneous water retention uh, caused by high estrogen levels. And it's a, a very good indicator of high estrogen levels. You know, not everyone gets all the same side effects. So if you are not getting, uh, you know, effects in your nipples, that doesn't, ju that doesn't mean, you know, right there you don't have high estrogen. But, you know, it's probably likely that you don't have super high estrogen, okay? If you're not getting effects in your nipples, like an itchy burning nipple, but instead you're getting these effects like, a, you know, a bloated puffy face and a softer, less defined looking body. Um, it's, it's probable that you have raised estrogen levels during those times, but that they're not super raised. So in your situation, you can just take a small amount of you can experiment you can either go get a blood test because that always works that always tells you you know what the information you need to know but you know if i say that to everyone people are going to be like yeah well thanks for helping me because i'm not going to go get a blood test you know so i'm trying to tell you guys because uh, i know that that's the way a lot of people are is they're not going to get the blood test so i'm trying to give you some anecdotal evidence that can help you uh troubleshoot what's going on instead um and what i would do if you know, if we were talking and uh, you were telling me about your situation is I would advise to have your anti-estrogen tablet, but to cut it up into smaller pieces and maybe take a, a quarter of the tablet. It doesn't matter whether it's Arimidex, Eximestane or Letrozole. It doesn't matter. Uh, whatever tablet you had, I would... I would say let's let's try taking a, a piece of that tablet and so maybe take a quarter of the tablet a third of the tablet a half of the tablet it would be up to you um, and then you could start putting that in on those days that you were feeling that moodiness um, and seeing what it did what it did you know anti-estrogen tablets kick in and they have effects in your body within two to three hours and some like eczemestane even have effects within 60 minutes after taking them so you can you can see whether or not the problems that you're having are caused by um, estrogen pretty quickly this is one of the ways that you can troubleshoot them but if you're not having you know full body estrogen effects you know like heavy bloating and you know like swollen nipples or like a, a prostate making it kind of harder to pee 
Um, if you're just having, you know, some light bloating uh, in your face and that's it with some uh, mood swing issues, then it's, it's probable that your estrogen is not far out of range, just slightly out of range, um, which then if you don't take a blood test and uh, see exactly, you know, what's going on, then you could start trying to, uh, you know, instead of doing that, you could do some troubleshooting. And one of the ways that you could do the troubleshooting would be to cut up the anti-estrogen tablets into small pieces and just take one and wait about four hours, wait about three or four hours and see what happens, see how you're feeling. This is one of those things, you know, guys, we're talking about uh, right now, we're talking about very small, uh, very small changes to hormone levels. And this is one of those things that it's really difficult to just tell you, um, you know, what to do. I can give you tips like this. This is like hints or tips from ex from an experienced user about things that work, you know, in order to treat or troubleshoot side effects like this. But these kinds of things like getting your estrogen in range, you know, feeling feeling great on hormones and making these small little alterations. These are one of those things that it really helps to have someone in close contact with you. So, I mean, before I answered Zach's question, I said something about, you know, the one hour phone call consultations or the um, text message based coaching that I do, you know, for things like this, that really helps because then um, I can use my experience and to ask you the right questions and you know, tell you these different troubleshooting things that you can do. And we can really dial in, you know, exactly what it takes to make you be feeling good. Um, because it's, it's more of something where, uh, where we're going to be making these small, tiny changes, uh, taking fractions of estrogen tablets and stuff, anti-estrogen tablets and stuff to, to try and get you feeling great. It doesn't really sound like your problems are really big, you know, with your estrogen. It sounds like it's just more of an annoyance. And, and you know, one thing that uh, makes me, that immediately makes me think, though, is that, you know, taking gear is a hassle. Taking anabolic steroids is a hassle. So anybody that thinks that it's just going to be like some smooth, easygoing thing and it's not going to add any stress to your life, like, that's, that's a fantasy. That's literally a fantasy. Taking steroids is a hassle. They do affect your mood from time to time. Um, you know, you mostly want them to affect your mood in a good way, but they increase things like paranoia. Um, you know, they can cause other hormones to happen that can, you know, hurt your sex drive, elevate your sex drive. Um, and they can do things like make you um, more aggressive and, uh, you know, not, not as trusting towards other people. Um, they definitely increase paranoia and your, uh, your tendency to, uh, assume, assume bad intentions of, of others. They increase those things. Uh, we talked about, uh, in the last episode, we talked about some of the effects of steroids and alcohol and what they produce together. So I think it's good that we discuss some of these, uh, mental effects that, uh, steroids produce. They don't, they don't produce psychosis, but you know, paranoia, um, some having some some types of mood swings or not being in as much of control as your mood um, you're as far as moods go it's more it's more common with with steroid users to have a strong mood rather than just a middle mood it's more common to have a mood that is you know very happy or very sad or very relaxed or very stressed out you know, these things increase your personality. They increase your assertiveness. They increase uh, who you are. So you have to expect those kinds of effects to be coming with them. And when you say, like, you know, sometimes you have you feel great and other times, you know, you don't feel so good. I just have to say, in addition to your estrogen levels, you know, having these slight out-of-range things, you've also got to just be realistic and uh, remember that, uh, you know, steroids and hormones they cause uh they cause your mood to be different at times and you can see this very clearly when a woman has her period or when uh, a woman goes on birth control because women are so sensitive uh mentally to the effects of hormones more so than males are but males are sensitive too 
So that's my answer to your question. The next question is from Yaneru, and he asks, Hey man, I just finished a PCT with Clomid and Nolva. I did a blood work and it came back at 400 nanograms per deciliter of testosterone and 11 of sex hormone binding globulin, which is low. How can I increase my sex hormone binding globulin? What do you think? Okay, yeah. So your testosterone level, your total testosterone level of 400, that came back kind of low. Um, because you want to definitely be on the higher end of the total testosterone range when you get a testosterone test. So you know how the range for what a normal testosterone level is uh, at the doctor's office is like anywhere from 200 nanograms per deciliter all the way up to, you know, 900 nanograms uh, per deciliter or even 1,100 nanograms per deciliter. And you go, how, how could there be a variance of four or five times the amount um, and that all be considered normal. You know, with other blood reading markers, you know, there's never a four or five times amount. And it's all normal. Like, hey, you have four or five times the blood pressure of another person. That's normal. Now, get out of here. That's that's completely unrealistic and it's totally bullshit. So the testosterone level um, and what is considered normal the studies that were conducted on that um, and the data that was extracted from them to produce those levels, they were taken from studies that uh, took data from young men um, around the ages of 18 all the way up to men around the ages of 80 years old, okay? So there was data pulled from, you know, people, young, young men, uh, middle-aged men, and old men. They took the, the testosterone levels, the total testosterone levels of men of all ages a large amount of men, and then they compiled the data and they came out with this data that, you know, anywhere between 200 nanograms per deciliter up to 1,100 nanograms per deciliter is all normal total testosterone levels, um, which is totally untrue, you know. You know, an 80-year-old man, his testosterone levels, what's normal for him, which is included in this data, is not normal at all for an 18-year-old guy, a 30-year-old guy, or even a 40-year-old guy. You don't want to have low testosterone. Some of the political things um, that that influence this too is the fact that, you know, they don't want to give you testosterone. Like, it's a very powerful hormone. And, you know, there's a general... Uh, there's a general suppression about knowledge of male hormones and, you know, how powerful they are in medicine. One of the reasons for that is because, you know, male hormones are very cheap to produce... And they cure a lot of diseases. And when, you know, you have such a cheap, easy cure to diseases, especially a natural hormone that can't be patented like testosterone, well then, what about all the other medicines that the pharmaceutical companies make to treat these illnesses that are patented? How are they going to be able to, you know, endure losing their money selling you those, uh, those drugs to cure your illnesses? When something that isn't even patentable like testosterone can come and cure your illnesses. So there's political reasons. And, you know, they, these people, these pharmaceutical companies are one of the major lobbyers of politicians and making the laws, stuff like that. So when you're talking about, you know, what is normal testosterone level, uh, you really have to read between the lines and look at how they came up with these normal testosterone level datas. Your insurance company doesn't want to pay for your testosterone replacement therapy, okay? They're happy to say that, you know, the level of an 80-year-old man, you know, two to 300 nanograms per deciliter or 400 nanograms per deciliter, they're very happy to accept that and say, hey, this is normal. You're normal, 25-year-old man, 30-year-old man, 35-year-old man, and, uh, and, and we will not pay for your testosterone replacement therapy. You're in the normal range. Get the hell out of here. I mean, they're very happy to do that. So that's talking about um, testosterone levels, total testosterone levels, and where those numbers came from and why those numbers that the doctors tell you are normal is totally not true. That is totally not true, okay? This is not medical advice. I'm just telling you that, you know, in reality, if you look at the data... Um, and how they came up with those numbers it is it, it's very dishonest to go around telling younger men that 200 nanograms per deciliter is in the normal range. And because they have that, that they can't get testosterone replacement therapy. I, I mean, 
That's fucked up. That's fucked up, okay? Okay, but you, you're asking about your SHBG. So 400 nanograms per deciliter, okay? It's on the lower end of the spectrum, but it's not like totally horribly low, you know? It's just you're on the lower end of the spectrum, okay? But then you said you also have low SHBG. So this is the way that some guys' testosterone readings are, is they have lower total testosterone, but then they have low SHBG, which means that the free testosterone level, the active testosterone level, is actually higher. And if you take a free testosterone test, almost always these guys that have the lower SHBG will have the uh, higher free testosterone that, uh, you know, it won't be a, low, a, a lower end of the spectrum uh, normal range, like 400 nanograms per deciliter, is where his uh, Yanaru's total testosterone level came back. But most likely, if he tested his free testosterone, you know, it would not be at the, the low end of the normal range like that. It would be higher because he has the low SHBG. Let's talk about what SHBG does. So, SHBG is sex hormone binding globulin, uh, which is a, a molecule that floats around in your blood, and it's very attracted to hormones okay um sex hormones specifically attracted to sex hormones and when sex hormones are bound up um they 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 couple like they they link on the sex hormone binding globulin links on to sex hormones and when that happens they get linked like that it makes it so that the sex hormones can no longer attach to their receptors so like estrogen if it was attached to shbg it would not be able to uh attach to the estrogen receptor and express its effects that, there and the same thing with testosterone or the same thing with decadurabilin or the same thing uh with deanabol whatever um if it is attached to sex hormone binding globulin then it is not going to be able to attach itself to the androgen receptor and express its effects there express the effects that the hormone does okay so generally if you are somebody who wants hormones in your body and you're putting hormones in your body um artificially from the outside um that's called exogenously endogenously means hormones from the inside you know naturally produced hormones and exogenously means hormones from the outside um non you know, non-naturally produced hormones that you put into your body. So if you have exogenous hormones and you're putting them in your body, uh, that means that you want to up your level of active hormones, obviously. So you want to have low SHBG, but the same thing goes, I mean, if you, if you have a, if you want to have the effects of your hormones, then you need to have lower SHBG. Okay. If the SHBG level is high, then the SHBG is binding onto your hormones and making them inactive. They can't do anything in your body unless they get rid of that SHBG, okay? So this is, you know, SHBG binds up a huge uh, percentage of the sex hormones that you produce. Um, something around 98, 99% of all the testosterone that you produce in your body um, is actually bound up to sex hormone binding globulin and only that little remaining 1% or 2% is actually able to express its effects in the body and do what testosterone does. So since you have the, the lower uh, total testosterone level at 400, but you also have the low sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG level, you know, that's a good thing. Because, like I said, if you took a test and looked at your free testosterone levels, they'd most likely not be on that kind of lower end of the spectrum. They'd most likely be just moderate, just totally normal. Um, and that's really the only number that you really even need to worry about. Total testosterone, it doesn't really tell you that much because it, it's, it's how much free testosterone. That's what actually matters. The free testosterone in your body is what actually does something, okay? And the more SHBG you have, the less free testosterone you have, the more bound testosterone, inactive testosterone you have, okay? So with you saying, like, how, how can I get my SHBG up? You don't want to do that. You want to keep your SHBG low um, because that's what's, you know, allowing your hormone system to, to work, okay? Different people, you know, some people have more SHBG naturally, and then they, have, uh, they also produce more total testosterone naturally. And then, you know, they will have somewhat of a, a middling uh, 
free testosterone level and then other people may produce like you less total testosterone but also less sex hormone binding globulin and then still have you know that same middling free testosterone level like i said free testosterone is the only number that matters and the let the less uh shbg that you have the higher your free testosterone can be so what are some things that reduce the levels of shbg in your body because i'm sure that if you're listening to this that's the next thought that you're thinking is okay well if shbg makes my hormones inactive and i'm doing bodybuilding or i'm doing uh athletics obviously i want to have low shbg okay that is that is definitely something that makes a big difference okay so and also if you have a, a low sex drive shbg is a big factor because shbg you know, it's attracted to testosterone, okay? But you know what it's even more attracted to? Is dihydrotestosterone, the brain chemical. The brain chemical that makes your sex drive, that makes your penis work, that makes you be able to get an erection. Um, dihydrotestosterone is converted when an enz- is it's created in the body when testosterone interacts with an enzyme that's also found in the body called 5-alpha reductase. And when those when that enzyme 5-alpha reductase interacts with testosterone, then it transforms the testosterone into this super potent brain chemical. And, and also it works in the skin. And like I said, like in the penis, the reproductive organs and uh, several other areas of the body. Um, and get, it gives you things like your sex drive, makes things like, a, like your beard grow, um, like body hair, you know, all those effects, uh, more oil on the skin. Those are all dihydrotestosterone effects. Okay. And, dihydrotestosterone is even more attracted to sex hormone binding globulin than um than testosterone is okay so if you have sex high sex hormone binding globulin that can also be a reason for low sex drive um or you know trouble with erections things like that so um, the way to get rid of shbg and lower it is to number one take steroids and take more steroids higher dosages of steroids when you raise the dosages of steroids that you have in your body, SHBG levels go down. That's uh, it. That's what that's what happens. It's the same thing with the androgen receptors. When you put more steroids in your body, your body creates more androgen receptors on muscle tissue, and it decreases the level of sex hormone binding globulin. Those are the effects of increasing uh, your hormone levels, and then another one of the ways that you can decrease um, sex hormone binding globulin even more potently, SHBG, is by using oral steroids. Um, Proviron, Dianabol, and Winstrol are both super SHBG-lowering molecules. So Proviron is the best at this, and if you put Proviron in, You'll notice a huge increase in your sex drive. That's because it's basically an orally available. It means you take a tablet and it's basically dihydrotestosterone, that molecule that is very attracted to SHBG even more so than testosterone. So basically when you take that proviron tablet, the uh, chemical name for proviron is mesterlone. Then that proviron tablet, the mesterlone that comes from it, um, the, the sex hormone binding globulin in your body recognize that as dihydrotestosterone and since it's so attracted to dihydrotestosterone it goes right in there and and attaches to that proviron and once that happens well now there's not that sex hormone binding globulin in the body that can attach itself to your other steroids that are muscle building because proviron is not a muscle building steroid so but once it's attached to the the proviron well now there's going to be more of the testosterone you're taking available uh, in your body because it's not going to be attached to sex hormone binding globulin anymore there's going to be more of the equipoise you know more of the primobolin uh whatever um that are going to be active in your body so there's a couple injectable um injectable hormones too and and by the way on the dosages for that um you know like i said proviron is the best one at reducing the shbg but dianabol and winstrol are also very potent at reducing shbg and the dosage that works for those to get the effects that um have been these have been studied in humans at these dosages and seen what are the effects on shbg taking those hormones okay and it's 25 milligrams per day 
the, any of those hormones, Winstrol, Proviron, or Dianabol, 25 milligrams per day of any of those hormones um, makes a, a dramatic drop in SHBG levels, okay? But then there's a couple of injectables, too, that work really well uh, for reducing SHBG levels. Like I said, just taking more steroids in general reduces SHBG, but these two injectable steroids do it really well, um, specifically, and that is Masteron and Trenbolone, okay? Trenbolone is basically immune to sex hormone binding globulin. It's one of the only hormones that you can take that just it, sex hormone binding globulin cannot bind to it. So it's very active in your body when you take it. That's one of the reasons why it's so strong uh, is because it can't be bound up and inactivated by sex hormone binding globulin like most hormones can. Um, and also it has a potent lowering effect of the total body load of SHBG. And then... Um, Masteron, it has a similar effect like uh, like Proviron does in the way that it lowers the SHBG levels in the body. So, I mean, you'll notice if you take any of these things that it increases your muscle growth, it increases your sex drive, it increases your nutrient partitioning, the amount of food that you can eat and gain muscle without getting fat. I mean, th this is this is actually a, you know a worthwhile um, component of bodybuilding to or taking hormones to understand this six hormone binding globulin thing. Um, and if you're on TRT or something and you know, you just, you've got the higher testosterone levels and, uh, you got your doctor to give you HCG too, but you're still wondering like, why is my sex drive still messed up? Because occasionally this does happen with guys. Okay. Um, then a next step that could, that could really help you would be looking at your SHBG levels um, and, and lowering them since the, the neurosteroid, dihydrotestosterone, that functions on your brain, functions on your penis, since that one is specifically attracted to SHBG and inactivated by SHBG more than the other hormones. Um, if you, you, know, you're, you got the, the good doses, the good testosterone levels on your TRT and you're on HCG2 and you're still having sex drive issues, then a good thing to look at would be your SHBG. Um, or if you're just, you know, on a cruise or something and you're wondering, you know, why is my sex drive low? Look at the SHBG. And if that's high, basically a non-toxic way to take care of that is to take 25 milligrams of Proviron per day. Because unlike most oral steroids, um, Proviron, you know, I, as I said, it's not muscle bit building. It's deactivated the moment it enters muscle tissue by an enzyme there called 3-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. Um, but, and that's the, same, that's the same thing that happens with the neurosteroid dihydrotestosterone. Even though it's very potent, it's inactivated the moment it gets inside muscle tissue by that same enzyme. Uh, but with Proviron, um, you know, it will bind up that uh shbg and lower the levels too so that more of your testosterone that you've been injecting for your testosterone replacement therapy and the testosterone that's coming from your balls from injecting the shbg is then available to work in your body um and you know it'll make your your sex drive go way up as well um yeah proviron if you uh if you're lacking your sex drive okay if you're lacking your sex drive and you don't know why and uh, you're trying to troubleshoot that and HCG is not working, then Proviron can be a really good one to experiment with because I don't know anyone on planet Earth that did not experience an increase in their mental sex drive and urge to do it from taking Proviron tablets, okay? Um, you know, I'm not going to get too into this, but just because I'm on the topic of troubleshooting sex drive, um, something like... Um, Looking at your thyroid hormone levels, if they're low, that can be another thing. If your thyroid hormone levels are low, uh, that can decrease your sex drive because thyroid is counterbalancing hormone with prolactin. And high prolactin levels completely shut off the male uh, sexual reproductive system from being able to work. So if you've got um, a low thyroid level, well, then that most likely means that you're going to have a high prolactin level, right? These, these hormones are counterbalancing. When thyroid levels are high, prolactin is usually low. And then the reverse. Um, so that can be another uh, troubleshooting thing to look at uh, for sex drive. When you're thinking, why isn't my sex drive high? All my hormones look good. What's wrong? Next question is from Nissus who asks, did you ever take an ACE inhibitor for high blood pressure? Uh, the answer to that is no. 
Um, some people do do this because blood pressure is a known issue with people who use steroids, especially in higher dosages. And there's some some uh, hormones that are more notorious for high blood pressure than others. Usually uh, hormones that have a high androgenic component to them um, and also a lot of steroids that have some estrogen effects that go with them. Um, testosterone, it can definitely increase your blood pressure. High dosages of testosterone. Um, so can things like Dianabol. Um, so can things like Trenbolone that really stimulate you. Um, so when getting the high blood pressure from that, you know, have I ever used ACE inhibitors or beta blockers? No, I have not. Um, those, I mean, those are two different classes of, of chemicals, but those are like standard blood pressure medications. And um, I don't take those. And the reason why is that, you know, you can take all the cocktail of drugs that you want and, you know, become like a walking pharmacy if you want. Um, but, you know, that's a slippery slope. That's a slippery slope. You know, no, no normal, healthy, athletic guy should be uh, taking ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and things like that, okay, for their blood pressure. That's a sign of something being wrong and uh, needing to not, not do what you're doing, you know, changing, changing something or a sign that, you know, drug abuse is going on. And uh, you need to not do that. So I am realistic, though in that, you know, I know that steroids can uh, increase blood pressure. So here's some of the things that really do. Uh, these are normal components of a lot of people's lives. And these things really do increase blood pressure, okay? First thing, caffeine. For most people, taking caffeine increases their systolic blood pressure 10 to 20 points, okay? So blood pressure is me measured in systolic and diastolic. The systolic number is on the top. The diastolic number is on the bottom. What systolic measures is the uh, tension, tension on the blood vessels when the heart pumps or pounds. And then the diastolic blood pressure is the blood pressure that is me measured or the pressure inside the blood vessels uh, when the heart is in the non-pump part of its uh, beating rhythm. Okay, so systolic is when it goes boom, and then systolic is during that little resting phase uh, where it, you know, pulls back and reloads again for the next boom, okay? And uh, usually people who are on steroids have a higher, you know, if they have an out-of-range part of their blood pressure, normally uh, that's going to be the systolic number, the... Um, harden it you know the the pressure within the veins when the heart pumps or when the heart beats hard so there are some things that can uh, reduce your blood pressure that you can do if you are experiencing uh, a high systolic or just high general blood pressure in general while you're on steroids okay so the first thing that you can do is fix your diet so if you're eating packaged foods, there's a lot of chemicals in those things. I know that it's so normal to eat packaged foods that you don't even think like this could be a thing. Okay. But this is true guys is that in packaged foods, there's a lot of chemicals added to them and like supplementation of the food. Uh, it's not natural at all. Um, that come from foods that you buy in boxes or packages. And these things have deleterious effects on your health. Uh, especially if you're eating them often, so one of the things that happens with them is uh, it's very common for people that are eating a lot of packaged foods to have that affect their blood pressure. Um, and if you just stop eating foods that do come in the packages and you start eating instead um, things that are grown in the ground, uh, things that are grown in the ground or eating animals or eating things that come from animals, uh, natural things like a, a natural human would eat that, you know, was you know, killing things in the wild and gathering things in the wild, generally your blood pressure will drop fairly dramatically if, if you make that one dietary switch. Okay, the other thing is eating carbohydrates. If you have high blood pressure and you go on a ketogenic diet, you can almost guarantee that right there, doing that one simple thing will solve your high blood pressure issues. I know that that sounds like, what? Because everybody's, you know, eating so many carbohydrates all the time. But honestly, it makes a huge difference. And if you're really having uh, blood pressure issues and, 
you know, you're saying I can't take steroids or something without having blood pressure. Well, this could be the thing that could, you know, change that for you um, because it has a massive effect on your blood pressure. Um, y- you know, the the blood pressure, it's it's a bad one. You don't want to you don't want to mess with this too much. Uh, you want to you want to make sure that the, the blood pressure is, you know, not above 140 for sure. If it's above 140, the systolic blood pressure, uh, you're, you're having an issue. Okay. So some of the carbohydrates that do seem to not increase the blood pressure as much though, if carbohydrates is in fact your problem, you experiment with that is rice. Rice seems to be a pretty clean carbohydrate that does not, um, impact blood pressure so much. Um, and then another thing guys is obviously caffeine. Uh, caffeine makes, it, I think I might have mentioned this a minute ago, uh, but I'll mention it again. It increases your blood pressure, okay? So uh, another thing that you can do uh, drug-wise before you go to something like an ACE inhibitor or a blood block or a beta blocker, which I don't recommend, um, is taking Cialis, okay? Cialis was developed, it was researched and developed for the purpose of being a blood pressure medication, but the side effect that was discovered with, you know, they're called phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitors, uh, Viagra, Cialis, you know, all those erection drugs, they were being studied as blood pressure medications, okay? But when they were being studied, it was, oh, this has this side effect that it makes people get erections, okay? And so then they changed what they were marketing it for, and it does still reduce your blood pressure, okay? Um, But uh, they changed the way that they market it to being marketed for uh, sexual dysfunction and erections instead of blood pressure. So if you take like five milligrams of Cialis per day, um, I mean, that's approved and prescribed for sexual dysfunctions for daily use. Five milligrams Cialis Tadalafil per day. And, you know, that does reduce your blood pressure. It relaxes your blood vessels it's a vasodilator and it's a pretty potent one and generally just doing that that one change right there five milligrams of cialis tadalafil per day it usually reduces blood pressure by about 10 to 15 points um especially on the systolic number um just you know making that alteration and so that that's uh that's a drug that you know it doesn't have effects on your kidneys uh like like something like a ace inhibitor and uh, it doesn't have effects on your heartbeat or, you know, causing dizziness or anything like that. So, um, and it also has the side effect of making, you know, your, your dick rock hard. So if I'm going to use uh, something for my blood pressure, um, and you know what, occasionally I do. If I might, you know, if I might uh, have a blood pressure headache or something because I did something stupid, which I have in the past, like I've injected 300 milligrams of testosterone propionate in one injection. And the next day I had a pounding blood pressure headache. Take a Cialis. It's one thing you can do and it'll help drop your blood pressure down right away. So that's what I do. I don't want to be too much of a walking pharmacy and uh, taking things, taking uh, medications that are not meant for healthy, active um, men. Um, who are, you know, doing high intensity exercises and stuff like that. I don't want to be taking things like blood pressure medications, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, that bullshit. If I'm going to take something, if I'm going to take something that's going to, uh, you know, lower my blood pressure a little bit, then it's going to be something that gives me an erection at the same time. So that's going to be Tadalafil. See, Alice. All right, next question. Uh, It's from Coolio. How to keep pretty boy looks while using gear. Does the muscles you get around your face from steroids go away once you stop taking gear? Or is your face permanently changed from gear use? Thanks, bro. Um, no, the, the face really isn't that permanently changed from gear use. Um, it's, it's pretty much the main, the main structural changes that happen to a man's face. Not a female's face, okay? But a man's face is uh, the, the muscles uh, built up around your skull. They, they build up quite a bit, especially on cycle. But um, even if you just go off cycle, um, it, like if you, you PCT and, you know, something like three months later, or if you just go on a cruise dosage of testosterone, like 200 milligrams per week, something like two to three months later, um, you can notice a reduction in the, uh, in the, in the musculature around your skull. It those those muscles respond pretty strongly to steroids 
And uh, when you when you stop taking them or you dramatically lower your dosages, um, they they do definitely go down. Um, something like cruising for an extended period of time, if you take steroids all the time and you just uh, you know decide you know I'm only going to take 200 milligrams of testosterone for the next few months. Um, generally, within two or three months, those uh, facial muscles, especially the ones around your temples, um, to the sides of your eye sockets, those are one of the major muscles that uh, really grow from chewing while you're on um, steroids. And uh, those are one of the ones that kind of change your head shape because when you're looking head on at someone and you see those uh, that, that outwards appearance happen right there where their temples are around the sides of their eyes, that's like one of the signature looks of, um, you know... Uh, a high power athlete, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, an NFL football player, and that's that's because of steroids. Uh, they they have an effect on that chewing muscle right there. It helps with closing your jaw, clamping your jaw. That muscle you can see it if you open and close your jaw. You'll see it moving around there, and that's one of the main muscles that uh, on your face that grow from using steroids. The other one that um, grows quite a bit is the one underneath your chin. So it's sort of that muscle that is it's uh it's not on your neck, but it's underneath your chin, like um, it's it's in that gap where the jawbone is underneath your the the ring or the horseshoe shape of teeth that is in your mouth. If you if you touch right below there, um, back uh, you know you touch your chin and then go back about an inch. Um, there's a, a muscle there that can kind of hang down and kind of give like a a bit of a double chin look. Um, it's not it's not a fat double chin look, but if you notice in a lot of um, steroid users, you'll see something kind of hanging down or kind of a shadow underneath the lower part of their jaw. Um, and that's that's that muscle right there um, getting really bulked up from using gear. So like I said, no, having those muscles big, that is not um, that is not permanent. And, you know, when you lower your dosages, you know, that goes away. You have to lower them severely, though. It's mostly if you go off, if you go off of steroids, that goes away. Uh, but if you lower them, you know, severely down to something like true TRT, you know, 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams or so of testosterone and maintain that for uh, per week and then maintain that for a few months, then, yeah, those muscles do go down. Uh, Fresh Prince asks, can you use metformin on TRT? Yeah, you can use metformin on TRT. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend it for growing your muscle, um, because you know, there's so much speculation on metformin. Okay. So doctors don't know how metformin works. Okay. They know some things, some effects that metformin produces, but they don't know why it produces those effects. Okay. And so there's so much conflicting evidence from study after study on metformin, because it's one of the main drugs that is prescribed for diabetes. So when you go looking for info information on uh, metformin for performance enhancing effects online, it's like a total clusterfuck and it will leave you like with a headache being like, what the hell, you know, I feel bad because all this information that I just looked at confused me even more. Okay. So the way, the way to determine about metformin is you shouldn't look at studies too much. Okay. Because it's going to confuse the hell out of you. What you should look at with metformin is, um, observing the effects of what it does. Okay. So it does increase the amount of carbohydrates that your muscles can take into them. Okay. And then it does things like decreases the amount of carbohydrates that your body absorbs from your intestines and decreases the amount of carbohydrates that are, sorry, fat that your body absorbs from your intestines. And then it does other things like with natural people, it reduces the level of testosterone that they create by about half. And also the same thing goes with their growth hormone and IGF-1 levels. Okay. So as far as somebody that's not supplementing with those hormones, um, growth hormone and IGF one, and they're trying to get big and, you know, supplement with metformin to help them do that. It's probably not a good idea, especially if you're not on testosterone. Okay. Um, but you know, personally I would use metformin, uh, in combination, if I was trying, you, you can use it to get full, to get a temporary glycogen loading effect in your muscles. Okay. You can use that instead of insulin, uh, to get a temporary increased ability to load, uh, carbohydrate fuel storage in your muscles. You can use metformin, but generally if you're trying to like grow muscle and get big, it's better to use growth hormone 
and metformin or and testosterone at the same time as you use metformin since those are two major muscle building hormones and when you take metformin both of those hormones the natural levels that you have of them are cut in half okay but metformin really shines as a weight loss agent so for guys that are having trouble losing weight um, it shifts the body's energy consumption towards fatty acid consumption consumption quite a bit um, and it also decreases the amount of energy that you absorb from your intestines and it gives you uh, some diarrhea and the combination of the fact that it makes your body's metabolism go more towards preferring to burn fatty acids instead of burning carbohydrates um, for its energy requirements and it decreases the amount of fat and carbohydrates that you can absorb from your intestines and it gives you diarrhea for the first you know three weeks or month that you use it those uh, those factors go together and uh, create you know quite a weight loss environment. Um, so you know it's not going to make you lose muscle if you take it with testosterone, okay? But if you're looking to like get cut up, um, like dude, you can take like a thousand or two thousand milligrams of metformin per day for like three weeks and honestly expect to lose something. If you're on steroids, if you're on testosterone, then you can honestly expect to lose something like seven to ten even like 15 pounds of fat like it can really cause some serious fat loss if you're if you've got some gear in there and you're taking that okay especially if you're adding in things like cardio with it um you know cardio works great for fat loss which is you know a lot of people say that you know cardio doesn't work for bodybuilding and fat loss which is ridiculous because we all know from our experience, not reading books, but from our experience that cardio does help with fat loss, okay? And then if you look up scientific research on the effects of exercise on fat loss, low-intensity exercise of the muscles, a.k.a. walking or jogging, um, increases all types of lipolysis, which is the way that uh, the body breaks down fatty acids from you know, the fat droplet cells um, around your body and then uses them for energy to supply that vital energy for other organs to function. Um, all processes and hormones created that regulate that process of fat burning lipolysis, all those processes are enhanced when you do low intensity um, exercise and especially when, lo when insulin levels are low, okay? So cardio is good for fat loss. The bodybuilders who say that, who, who say that it's not, what you can say to them is, dude, you were born with some kind of ridiculous metabolism. You're not a normal person, okay? So, yeah, if you do anything <laughs> other than weightlifting and eating, you lose all the muscle. But those people are almost always born super lean and really can't even gain much fat anyways. So they're not the normal people. Don't listen to them. Okay, the next question is about testosterone and anthate, and it is on 250 milligrams of testosterone a week is once a week injection fine or should they do twice per week you can do once per week okay testosterone from ananthe will definitely stay in your system um, for one week and you'll have normal testosterone levels all week long from that one testosterone shot okay but it does vary um, the amount of testosterone that you'll have on certain days of that week from taking that one shot so I mentioned this earlier in the podcast today that testosterone and anthate peaks 24 hours after injection. So about 24 hours or so after your injection of 250 milligrams of testinanthate, you've got about 25 milligrams or 20 milligrams or so from that shot released in your bloodstream, okay? And so then for the next three days, three or four days, it's pretty similar to that, releasing something like... Uh, you know, 20 milligrams, you know, 18 milligrams, 17 milligrams, you know, each day from that shot into your blood, okay? But then after that, after that, like, third or fourth day um, until, like, day five, day six, day seven on those days, it, it starts dropping off, um, you know, more. So, you know, on day four or day five, it, it's only, like, 10 milligrams or so, you know, 12 milligrams, 10 milligrams. You know, day six, day seven is something like, 
you know, six milligrams, seven milligrams being released into your blood on those days from that one shot, okay? And this varies from person to person and the way that they metabolize testosterone. That's why I'm giving you these, you know, ranges right now. You, I can't tell you an exact number because each person is different in their ability to metabolize or to destroy, break down testosterone and the enantheester in their blood, okay? But those are the regular numbers. So if you can see from, from the way that I was just describing that, you know, on the first day after your shot, you're going to be releasing, you know, at least double the testosterone into your blood uh, from that shot that you release, you know, on the seventh day. You know, on the seventh day, it's going to be much less released into your blood from that shot than you got released on the first day after that shot. So you can do it that way and you'll still have natural testosterone, you know, a good fine testosterone level. It's not like you're going to have low testosterone. Um, but if you do it twice per week, you get rid of that whole thing. And then, you know, during the whole week you're getting like, you know, only a variance of a few milligrams released into your blood, uh, per day, you know, somewhere between, you know, 15 to 20 to 25 milligrams, somewhere in that range is being released into your blood, um, each day of testosterone instead of somewhere between, you know, like five and 25 milligrams being released each day into your blood. So there's more of a hormonal roller coaster. Um, if you, uh, but it's not an extreme hormonal roller coaster, you know, it's a slight effect that you can feel. Um, if you're doing it once per week versus twice per week, if you hate doing injections, it's fine. Just do once per week. Um, if you want to maintain a more stable testosterone level and have a, you know, the same, what or what feels like the same level of testosterone in your body every single day, well, then you'll need, even with an anthate, to be doing uh, twice a week. The next uh, question is from Jimin Awake, and he says injectable orals versus oral, oral, okay? So you can inject oral anabolic steroids. What does that mean? Okay. So oral anabolic steroids are active in your body because they possess a chemical alteration to the hormone called 17-alpha alkylation, okay? And this 17-alpha alkylation prevents the liver from breaking it down when it goes into your system. Whenever you take any kind of drug or any kind of hormone, any kind of steroid, what happens is there is a vein that leads straight to your liver from your stomach. And the drug goes through and passes through that vein into the liver. And then the liver processes it, okay? And mostly destroys it um, before it can get to your to your blood. That's what the liver does. Is it breaks things down. It breaks down toxins. Uh, and so in order to make um, steroids be able to be taken through your mouth um, and then be able to get into your bloodstream, um, the chemists had to do something to the steroids to prevent the liver from breaking them down when they went through that vein from the stomach into the liver. Um, and they're, then they're in the liver. They had to make, they had to put something on the steroid to prevent it from being broken down before it could get into the bloodstream, into the circulation. And the molecule that prevents that prevents the liver from breaking down the steroid and destroying it before it can get into the circulation, the bloodstream and, you know, go find the muscles and everything like that is this, uh, it's this molecule on the steroid uh, called 17-alpha alkylation that prevents the liver from destroying it before it can get into the body's blood circulation, okay? So just because it has this 17-alpha alkylation uh, molecule attached to the steroid, that doesn't mean that it can't also be injected, okay? So even though it can be taken orally, it can still be injected like any other steroid hormone, okay? And it's still very effective if it's injected. Actually, it's more effective if it's injected. Um, you know, for, some, for something like Winstrol, because this is a common injectable but also oral, okay? Winstrol inject and Winstrol oral are both the same chemical, okay? They're both stenozolol, that's the chemical name, and uh, they both, you know... If you had a, a vial of injectable Winstrol, you could drink that and it would be the same as taking the tablets because it would, you'd be taking the same ingredient that is in the same active ingredient that is in the tablets if you drink that vial, okay? But that's not the same as something like, um, like testosterone enanthate, okay? Because testosterone enanthate, um, you know, you, there's no testosterone enanthate tablet and that's for a reason. That's because enanthate 
testosterone enanthate does not pro- possess a 17 alpha alkylation molecule to that steroid. And so if you ate it, your liver would destroy it when it went into the liver through the vein from the stomach into the liver. Um, then the liver would obliterate it and you'd barely get any at all in your blood circulation. Okay. But this it's different with an oral steroid because an oral steroid or any steroid with the 17 alpha alkylation can withstand the metabolic breakdown processes of the liver. So you can either take it in your mouth or you can inject it. Okay. But the reason why it's more effective when you inject it is because you bypass that first, it's called first pass metabolism, uh, which is where the, the chemical goes through the vein from the stomach into the liver and then the liver processing the chemical and metabolizing it. That's called first pass metabolism. And then it gets to the bloodstream. Okay. If you just put it into your body by injecting it instead of taking it orally, well, now it doesn't have to go through that first pass liver metabolism. Instead, it goes through the liver um, once it's already inside of your body in your bloodstream. Then it goes through the liver, okay? So because it didn't have that first pass liver metabolism, what that means is that uh, part of the, you know, when, when even with the 17-alpha alkylation, still some of the steroid gets uh broken down and metabolized during first pass metabolism. When you orally take a 17 alpha alkylated steroid, part of it still gets destroyed by your liver. Okay. But not much of it, you know, uh, but, but it's, it's enough. It's something like, it's something like, you know, 20, 25% or so, um, will get destroyed by the liver. Um, but then uh, on the way, on the way in, on the way into your bloodstream, on the way into circulation in your bloodstream, something like 20, 25% can get destroyed by the liver. Um, but if you inject that same, uh, oral steroid and the way that they do that is they, you know, they, they put the crystals that would be normally in the tablets. They put the crystals in, in like sterile water. And then, um, you know, you inject that sterile water and crystal solution, um, into the muscle. And then, you know, it didn't have to pass the liver before it could get into your bloodstream. Instead, you just put it into your bloodstream by putting it into the muscle. So then there's more of it active in your bloodstream. So there's been studies on that measure, like uh, taking 50 milligrams of Winstrol um, orally and then taking 50 milligrams of Winstrol uh, on an injection. And the difference, um, the difference in the, the concentration would generally be something like a 20 to 30% increase in the amount of, of, uh, of mass of the steroid that actually got into the circulation from the injection. If they injected the same amount as they took orally, generally something like 20 to 30% more of the active steroid was measured and ended up in the bloodstream. Um, when they did, when the, the scientists took measurements on, uh, the effects of doing this. Okay. So that's the main difference between, uh, injecting an oral steroid and, in, you know, taking it through your mouth because once that oral steroid is, uh, in your body and it has got that 17 alpha alkylation, even if you injected it, it still is liver toxic. Okay. And your liver still has to break that down. It's just that you were able to put the whole steroid in your body and get it in there, um, without the liver being broken down. So instead of getting, you know, part of the steroid from taking it orally, you get the whole steroid, uh, you know, the whole amount of the steroid instead of part of the amount of the steroid, uh, because you injected it. So you get the whole amount put into your bloodstream. And so, uh, you know, per dosage injectable oral anabolics, uh, like injectable Winstrol, for example, is stronger than oral Winstrol at the same dosage. The same thing with like injectable Dianabol versus oral Dianabol. If you take 50 milligrams of Dianabol inject, it's going to be stronger than 50 milligrams of Dianabol taken through your mouth. If you take 50 milligrams of Winstrol injected, it's going to be stronger than taking 50 milligrams of Winstrol through your mouth. More ends up in the bloodstream, but it's not less toxic, okay? The the steroid still has to go through the liver, um, and it still has to be broken down there and metabolized there before it can get out of your body. And if you look online about case reports of... Um, people having, uh, you know, problems, um, from, 
you know, using oral steroids. There's plenty of examples of people, you know, going into the hospital for liver problems from using injectable Winstrol, from using injectable metandienone, which is the chemical name for uh, Dianabol, okay? Um, and the same thing with any other of these injectable steroids. There, there's kind of a, a thought that goes on um, in the online community of bodybuilders that, you know, it's going to be safe if you uh, inject it because then you miss the liver on the way into the body, you know, because you didn't take it in your in your mouth and let it pass through the liver. Well, no, that that's not actually correct. You know, once once it gets into your body through an injection, it's still got to go through your liver. It just uh, bypassed that what's called first pass metabolism. And instead, it's at a later time metabolized by your liver. It's stronger. You know, it's stronger milligram for milligram. If you take 50 milligrams of inject versus oral, the inject is stronger, but it's still toxic. Um, and if you want to confirm that, there's plenty of case reports of people injecting oral anabolic steroids and um, having, you know, liver problems, liver failure, liver disease, elevated en liver enzymes, stuff like that, okay, having problems. Is that normal? No, it's not normal to take uh, oral steroids and, you know, out of nowhere have some liver problems, okay? But I'm just saying that don't think that because you inject the the oral steroid that it's like, oh, it's not toxic or something. No, it's still toxic. The main thing that you get from injecting it versus taking it through your mouth is that you get uh, more of the milligrams into your body for a for the same dosage. So it's it's more effective, okay? It's more effective if you take the same amount of milligrams oral or inject. The inject is more effective. That's the main effect of oral steroids, um, taking them through your mouth versus injecting them in an intramuscular injection. If you would like your questions to be answered on the Steroids Podcast, go to steroidspodcast.com and leave a comment with your questions or email or private message steroidspodcast at gmail.com or steroidspodcast on Instagram. Until next time.